When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel, The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the forthcoming novel, Brotherless Night. As regular listeners know, uh, I spent time in Iraq as an embedded reporter, and I'm always interested in what's going on there and also with Iraqi writers. And I'm always interested in the situation of women and especially civilian women during war and occupation. That's a lot of what I write about myself. And since about 2014, I've been following news about Yazidi women. Um, and in today's episode, we're going to talk to a writer who has written about the Yazidi people, not only in multiple genres, but also, amazingly, in multiple languages. First, a little background for our listeners. The Yazidis who have their own religion are indigenous to Kurdistan, the Islamic State, which some of you probably know as ISIS, regards Yazidis as infidels because of their religious beliefs. When ISIS reached Sinjar in northern Iraq in 2014, they targeted and killed as many as 10,000 Yazidi men. That number is, according to the New York Times, uh, the UN and Congress declared this an act of genocide. At the same time, ISIS also kidnapped some 6,000 Yazidi women and children, many of whom were subjected to sexual slavery for the next several years as they were bought, sold, and traded among ISIS fighters. So several years later in 2019, ISIS was defeated in southeastern Syria, and most of the Yazidi women captives were freed. Many of them went back to the Yazidi community, and today those women are recovering from the atrocities that they suffered. Uh, and some have sought to reunite with the children that they had while they were in captivity, and those children were generally not accepted into the Yazidi community. And of course, other Yazidi people remain missing. There's been a fair amount of nonfiction writing about the plight of the enslaved Yazidi women over the years, including a memoir by Nobel Peace Prize recipient Nadia Murad, who is Yazidi. Michigan-based Iraqi-American writer Dunya Mikhail also wrote about them in her acclaimed 2018 book, The Beekeeper, The Stolen Women of Iraq. Now Dunya, who began her career as a poet, has returned to the ordeal of the Yazidi women in her first novel, The Bird Tattoo. And we're honored that she's here with us today to talk about this book and about writing about the Yazidi people in multiple genres and languages. Dunya Mikhail was born in Baghdad. After graduating from the University of Baghdad, she worked as a journalist and translator for the Baghdad Observer. Facing censorship and interrogation, she left Iraq first to Jordan and then to America, settling in Detroit. Her nonfiction book, The Beekeeper, Rescuing the Stolen Women of Iraq, was a finalist for the National Book Award. She's also the, the author of the poetry collections, The Iraqi Nights, In Her Feminine Sign, and The War Works Hard, which was chosen as one of the New York Public Library's books to remember. She's also the author of a memoir, Diary of a Wave Outside the Sea, and is the editor of the volume 15 Iraqi Poets. She's the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, a United States Artist Fellowship, a Knights Foundation Grant, a Kresge Fellowship, and the United Nations Human Rights Award for Freedom of Writing. And she works as a special lecturer of Arabic at Oakland University in Michigan. 
Dunya, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Sugi. So, Dunya, you began your career, as we were just mentioning, as a journalist and a poet, and your early writing attracted the attention of the Iraqi authorities, and their desire to censor you led to you leaving Iraq permanently. And I wonder if you can tell our listeners a little bit about your history as a writer and a refugee from that regime. Well, I started writing very early, since childhood, but the first time I heard someone calling me a poet uh, was in secondary school. My friends in the class were calling me the poet because I was writing poems as gifts for their birthdays. And But it was in college, actually, when this, um, you know, when I started thinking of myself as a, as a writer. Um, that was also when I realized that I really needed the freedom to, to write. It's essential, you know, for any writer. And uh, uh, I wanted to be understood by the readers, but not by the censors, because, uh, you know, that was dangerous and they would put you in trouble. If not, uh, they put you in danger, you know. So I used metaphors to hide my meaning, just like like a core of an onion with all those layers, you know. And after graduation from the University of Baghdad, where I studied English literature, I worked as a journalist for the Baghdad Observer. And again, that was as a, you know, a journalist, again, I felt the need to write freely. And well, things, however, complicated after, not only because of those essays or articles I was writing, but during that time, also my text Diary of a Wave Outside the Sea was published and that really attracted the attention of that censorship departments and one of the censors came to my office in the Observer and interviewed me. He said interviewed, but it was like investigation and interrogation, let me say. And um, uh, through friends, they kind of, uh, through links, I knew that I, they, they said, uh, you know, there's a file and there's this and that, that, um, kind of labeled, your writing is labeled, they said, and I needed to leave quickly. And that was not easy because travel was not allowed and um, uh, you had to have a leave of absence from your work, which was complicated. But in a brief, I would say I was able to leave through poetry because, or by poetry, and that was uh, through a friend who in the passport office changed my profession into poet. So it's my passport is very unique. And you know, this story has a lot of details, but but I, I just that in brief, I felt like I was saved by poetry. You wrote about the situation of the Yazidi women in your 2018 nonfiction book, The Beekeeper, um, and about a Yazidi man who works to free Yazidi women held captive by ISIS. The beekeeper character, Abdullah, returns in The Bird Tattoo, uh, which is a novel. What was it like to come back to these facts and this character with the lens of a new genre? And why did you choose to do that? Mm. Yeah, well, I responded in all literary genres to this huge, it was so huge that I felt the need to respond um, in, in all genres. So when I first learned about what happened and that women were put for sale in the market, uh, my first response was in poetry, because that's what I usually do. I'm used to, you know, respond in poetry. Then 
the journalist, I think, awoke in me and I started to investigate, to make interviews, to, I mean, try to make contacts or reconnect with my friends and relatives back home to understand more what happened and to check on them, etc. My coincidence call with the beekeeper, uh, and it really happened by chance, that's like a longer story, which was in the beekeeper book explained, but that and that call lasted, by the way, for a full year or more. And that resulted in the Beekeeper book as a nonfiction. Uh, as a nonfiction because I felt it was important to let the world know that this actually happened. And that it was already more, it was stranger than fiction. So, But then after that, um, and when I wrote that book, really it was a big challenge and uh, but but it pushed me into a new territory as a writer, you know, like I always used to write poetry, but in prose, this time, kind of um, uh, the, the, all the research I did on the, these interviews and resulted with one uh, meeting with a particular woman that was not in that book, uh, in the Beekeeper book, I learned more and more about her after. So this time, not only because of that, but I wrote, I wrote it as a novel. I felt the need as if I wanted to liberate the captives artistically. I wanted to use my imagination uh, along the way of telling their story. So um, it was, um, and I, in, in fiction, really, I felt the space was, was bigger for me. I was able to... Uh, to 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 use even poetry, uh, not as a not I don't mean lines of poetry or language, but as an energy that that was there. I think it charged the the novel with symbols and metaphors, and it is full of those um, which are so beautifully imagined. And and you were talking about the beekeeper, which positions your knowledge and understanding of the situation in this very specific way. Um, your point of view as someone of Iraqi heritage who teaches in Michigan and is learning about what's happening, um, albeit through closer connections, obviously, than someone like me who doesn't have Iraqi heritage. And and the structure of that phone call is, as you mentioned, um, for those of our listeners who may not have read this book, which is also s- such a, an incredible book, um, that structure is so plain in there. So we kind of learn along with you. And it's in, of course, first person. And we see, um, right, of course, someone who has been a Yazidi a captive woman who does not speak Arabic telling her story in Kurdish. Um, and this is just one example, telling her story in Kurdish to someone who tells it to you. So it's passing through these multiple levels of translation. And that's very plain in the structure of how you've written it. And then the bird tattoo, on the other hand, is is close third person. And much of it is from the point of view of a Yazidi captive, um, Helene. Uh, am I saying that correctly? Yes, Helene, who does, and she speaks Arabic. And um, I'm curious about that shift in point of view from the first uh, book compared to the second, how it, how you thought through that, how you decided, because Helen is the, the woman who you, you're speaking about getting to know after having written The Beekeeper. Beekeeper. As I understand it, that woman is the inspiration for Helen, is that, or Helene, I'm sorry, is that correct? Exactly. So, yes, so after the book was, you know, the beekeeper book was published, the uh, Helene that's or has a different name in reality, although the novel is based on her story. It's on her true story, uh, kind of. 
But I met her in the camp when I, you know, went uh, visited uh, when I went to north of Iraq and uh, for the sake of that book, and um, she really like we stayed in touch. She stayed in touch with me, and gradually I learned more and more about her story, her background story, her history of her people, about her from her more and more, but. She all these details stayed in my mind, and that um, to the to the point that she even visited me in my dreams and my nightmares, and uh, I couldn't get rid of of um, you know this kind of what you called inspiration. I like how you called it, but that was a calling for me as a writer to uh, respond to that. And this time, as I said, I I responded um, in 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 fiction. So Helene. Um, that's her her story, but um, but the details and knowledge from you know my memory, and from the interviews uh, with other people that I spoke to, all these kind of combined, uh, uh, you know, shaped the frame or the, con- the, the this novel. So it is, um, and this time, uh, you know, kind of. Um, just like how in poetry, for example, you are inspired by an image, a word, a feeling, you know, and that becomes a seed of, of a poem that breathes, it breathes for a full, for a full life and, and, and same way. So that was uh, her words, her story, her, um, that was an inspiration of the, to create all these um, the, the full life, which is the novel. Can you talk to us just a little bit specifically about the Yazidi people? Um, I think Americans are pretty familiar with the Kurdish people, and we heard a lot of news about them. Now, Sugi is very familiar, was familiar with the Yazidi story, uh, but I don't. I, I think a lot of people are not. And can you talk about the distinction between what it, the Kurds and the Yazidi and their connection? The, the Yazidi speak Kurdish, and and how those sort of different racial groups interrelate in the northern part of Iraq. Yeah, and by the way, when I was in Iraq, you know, I um, I didn't know that much. I heard, I know there there are Yazidi people, but I didn't know much about them. And uh, this was uh, the occasion that I learned more and more about them and visited them and kind of, um, just like anybody else, let's say here in America, they learned about them. But uh, so they are, um, the interesting thing I learned is that all, Kurds were Yazidi, and the the Yazidis are the ancient, really ancient. Um, don't want to say the ancient people, but their religion and their uh, culture, their existence is the is the the most ancient, maybe uh, in those you know ancient of ancient civilization. I mean, they were they were the only ones, the only Iraqis that kept their rituals, uh, the customs, and the traditions. And their um, their religion, however, is oral. So unlike the other, let's say the three main religions have books, textbooks, not textbooks, sorry, like their sacred books, whatever it's called. I mean, the Quran, the the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Quran. These are the the books. The Yazidis don't have an, um, a prophet and a book like that, and that why. That's the reason the, uh, those uh, extremists or um, the terrorists and they are uh, who claim to be Muslims, they um, they call them infi- they call the Yazidis infidels because they said they told them because you don't have a book and you don't have a prophet. 
So, and that they have, you know, a lot of their rituals considered, between parentheses, not appropriate, according to those extremists. And um, a lot I can, uh, I would need long time to list all their beautiful and interesting rituals and traditions. And, um, um, and, and I try to kind of put these, this information, which is, it could be kind of nonfiction, but in, in, the, in the novel, I kind of touched upon all these, um, uh, um, you know, uh, aspects of, of their culture and tradition through the events, not kind of, you know, it's, it's written the novel, of course, as you expect, written different way than fiction, where you can yourself talk about that. But this, on the tongues of the characters and the events kind of reveal um, this, uh, these even anthropological facts about them. Uh, and I, interestingly, I learned that um, all Kurds were Yazidis in the beginning, but then they converted to Islam and some of them stayed Yazidis. So these are the only ones that stayed. Uh, the Yazidis stayed as, as Yazidis. Um, so uh, Kurdish is their language. Um, that They share their language and their culture with the, with the Kurds. And, and they live together in the area of Kovosas, close in the north of Iraq. So I, I have more questions, just real quick. Like, so are they, are they considered a separate racial group within Iraq, or are they considered a separate religious group within Iraq? Iraq is, is so diverse. So it, is, uh, it has a lot of ethnic uh, minorities within, you know. Um, Maybe ethnic would have been the better word to use than racial. Yeah, ethnic yeah. groups, a separate ethnic group. Or yeah. So go ahead and answer. Sorry, I'm correcting myself. Yeah, so Iraq has a lot of ethnic groups, including the Yazidis. And um, um, they have, um, you know, and also they have their own religion. Uh, for example, Christians, a lot of um, uh, communities of Christians that have um, different kind of dialect and different, a little bit different traditions and things like that, but they, they belong to one religion. Muslims have different insects, but they belong to one religion. Uh, but the, the Yazidis, um, you know, they have their own religion and their own um, traditions and rituals. And is that why they were singled out by the ISIS fighters and abused in the way that you describe in the book? So I learned that when ISIS took uh, people, uh, Christian in the beginning and then Yazidis, they freed the Christians, even though they, well, they had them go empty handed, the Christians, but they didn't uh, enslave them because they said, you are people of the book since they have the uh, the Bible, then they, 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 they said that you are free, but they free empty-handed. They took their stuff and freed them. The Yazidis, they said, they called them infidels because they said you don't have a book, a sacred book. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back.
So the question that Whitney asked about um, the relationship between uh, Yazidi and Kurdish communities is interesting because as I was kind of doing research for this episode and, and looking around the internet, it seemed like this is a contentious question to ask because some people consider Yazidis to be Kurdish and, and other people do not. And so I've found all of these carefully phrased things that kind of... Oh, leave it to me to ask <laughs> to wander into the thicket well, of problems. I, and then the other thing that I had heard, um, and I don't know if, if you're familiar with this at all, but of course, I mean, there are moments in the book where Helene prays to um, the fallen angel um, who is kind of the center of Yazidi religion. And I believe another name for this deity is Shaitan, which, of course, in some languages is translated as Satan. And so that one reason that the Yazidi community has been persecuted is because they are misunderstood as devil worshipers, um, and that this was one reason that they had been targeted. I don't know if you can speak to that at all. I didn't hear about them about uh, from them about Shaitan, but I know they uh, their angel is called Peacock. Uh, it's called Taus Melek, which means angel peacock. That's what they told. Right, me. and then there's yeah, and so there's moments there's moments in the book where um, Helene in in dire straits um, prays to prays to. Um, um, the peacock angel who who you're referring to. So anyway, for th- for those of our readers who are, are interested in reading more about this, we'll try and put more in the show notes um, about some of the reasons that the Yazidi community was targeted. Um, I wonder if before we go any further, I would love to have you read to us from the novel. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll read this kind of a page or or almost two pages from the second chapter. The, cha- the chapter is titled Half of a Person's Beauty. Ayash sat in the front of the car next to the driver. In the back seat, he leaned toward the back... Uh, st- sorry, I'll start all over. Ayash sat in the front of the car next to the driver. In the back seat, he leaned toward the black niqab they had given her. The two men immediately started talking to each other, and Helene found herself looking through the window at a city she recognized as she would a familiar person who had fallen sick. The city of Mosul looked pale, silent, and slow as never before. There were no crowds or loud music coming from the shops. Black flags had replaced the neon advertisements. Even the Tigris River flowing under the bridge, looked completely deserted and oblivious of everything going on above it. These trees she looked at through the car window were the same ones she she used to freely walk wearing clothes of her choice and sometimes of her own design, inspired by fashion magazines. Once, Helene had imitated the style of a girl wearing her jeans slightly torn, she tore her own pants at the knee. When Helene's mother saw this, she offered to patch them up for her. From this street in particular, Helene used to buy buttons, fabrics, and threads. Most customers on this street were seamstresses, as well as some shoppers needing to repair shoes or watches or radios. Its shops were small, not exceeding two by three meters each just a table, a chair, and a lamp. People still called it King Ghazi Street, 
although the government had officially changed its name to Revolution Street. Helene didn't know who King Ghazi was, but her neighbor Shayma, known as Um Hamid, had once told her that King Ghazi had always liked to show off. That was why, when he was a 16-year-old schoolboy, he had his plane descend to a very low altitude above his school, so his classmates would see him in, in, the, in the plane, which the British called the magic carpet. The clothing shops looked familiar to Helene, except for the niqabs, which had been put on all the mannequins. Helene and the mannequin were dressed alike, but the mannequin was not for sale. The niqab is a purity and together we take care of the tree of the caliphate, where these were among the banners now attracting Helene's attention. A few meters away, she saw a handwritten phrase repeated on more than one wall. In a thick font that could be read even from afar, the graffitis read, I love you, Nadawi. This was the usual nickname for Nada or Nadia. Helene imagined a lover writing on the walls of this city. Did he want to set a contrast to the other, more serious banners? Or to vandalize the walls with the huge sloppy handwriting of that simple phrase? Or was he simply a lover who had lost his mind? The sudden voice of Ayash interrupted Helene's thoughts. He had lowered the window of the car and was now yelling at a woman walking on the sidewalk. You woman, cover your hair. The citrus receded and disappeared from Helene's view, as did her formal life. former life. The steering wheel was not in her hand to return to that life, yet she would return as soon as she could, she thought. She would find a hole in the, in the wall through which she could get back to her family. Thank you very much. Um, now, I mean, when the book opens, just to be clear for readers, you know, Helene is, is in being held in a school, I think, a school building, and she's being, you know, where all the women being held there are being routinely raped by the men who are holding them. And then they're also being sold off to husbands for, for money. I mean, it's the most brutal possible imaginable conditions. Um, and I thought about this because I was in Mosul in 2010 as a reporter. Um, and I was covering the withdrawal of American forces from Iraq. And I, you know, Mosul was what Helene is describing in that, in uh, the old Mosul that she's describing in that passage, right? I mean, it was pretty open. It was not as dangerous uh, as it had been in 2006 when I had been there as a reporter before. You know, that we, I went to a, a place where some Kurdish soldiers and some Iraqi soldiers and some American soldiers were working on fixing a highway interchange. There, there, you know, there weren't a bunch of IEDs. Everything looked really good. But I felt, and I opposed the war in Iraq, but I felt very nervous about the troops leaving then. And the truth is that, that ISIS was then taken over by this ISIS. I mean, I'm sorry, Mosul was taken over by ISIS after the Americans left. There was this great darkness that fell over that city. And I just, I wanted to talk some about that and that era, what it felt like to be an Iraqi watching that happen, how you felt about the Americans leaving at that time. Um, 
Well, I, I, I was not there. I didn't know what was exactly happening on the ground when they fell. I mean, when they left, that I didn't know that. Of course, like we, I didn't anticipate that uh, ISIS or Daesh would be, you know, controlling. Nobody imagined that. Otherwise, nobody would stay there. But um, Americans uh, withdrawing. Um, to be honest, I didn't have a certain feeling or reaction towards that. It was more towards when they invaded. <laughs> when, when there was yeah. the invasion of Iraq, that when I was, um, you know, surprised and kind of shocked because they even call it invasion. And this is a negative word, of course. And even though I was, you know, like any other, uh, the other, uh, you know, my generation, people who were dreaming of freedom or change in Iraq, a change of regime, but not through this, not through the invasion. So the scene that you read is, of course, um, it's really beautifully written and, of course, also horrific because of what Whitney mentions. I mean, that scene is sort of an interlude. Ayash, the character who you, whom you mentioned, has purchased Helene um, and he is his job. We see him policing the woman t- on the sidewalk, telling her, cover your hair. And that's actually his job. Um So before and after the scene, Helene and her fellow captives are subjected to brutal sexual violence. The book really pulls no punches on that point. And I sometimes write about sexual violence, and I spend a lot of time thinking about this myself. So I'm really curious to to hear you talk about it, how you managed working through that material, both from the point of view of thinking about it in relation to language, right? Because there are parts of this book that are beautiful. Um, And then also making it a task that was doable for yourself as a writer. Yes, and yeah, so that was, uh, Ayash was, uh, his job was, uh, more, uh, worked for morality police, what's called morality police, and these days, I, I'm sure this is, this is relevant to what's happening, we hear like similar, um, you know, situation, for example, in Iran, where uh, women went in uh, protest for that uh, morality police, unfair practices, they even killed, you know, maybe you I'm sure everybody heard about that young woman who was killed by morality police. She's not so different from Helene and with her circumstances. Anyways, but to answer your question about that, how, you know, I about the beauty next door to the pain in the novel. And um, I felt really the need to create some balance, uh, not only for my readers, but also for me, uh, you know, in this... Um, um, in the novel, even in my previous book, The Beekeeper, you know, maybe you remember that I included some short sections of poetry between the stories because um, as if I felt of those or thought of them as what is called the warrior's rest, it's to borrow from the term from the war, um, I felt it's needed. Uh, that was kind of rest of the mind a little bit between the stories. And the bird tattoo, I also used poetry to create that balance, but this time as an energy uh, to, you know, to, to charge the text, uh, the novel with, with metaphors. For example, um, for example, the, the setting of the village, the Haliqi village, is not uh, neutral. Um, it, it has a semantic purpose, dynamic manifestation in, in this particular story. Uh, for example, the villagers, uh, their ritual of uh, celebrating the freedom of their birds, uh, a particular festival 
uh, called the bird day when they burn the cages and dance around. Uh, this provides an important metaphor and also an irony when they, they themselves uh, become captives later. And things like that, I mean, I can go on and on, but it's, I can, like, this is just one example how I uh, try to, you know, work on, in, in, this, uh, in this novel. There are also some scenes, um, you know, as is mentioned actually in the past that you read, um, Helen's main desire is to get back to her family. Um, and partway through the book, we move into other characters' perspectives and see how Helene met her husband, or Helene, met her husband Elias uh, when he visited her village. And these scenes are beautiful and peaceful in terms of talking about how to, you know, create different textures within the book. Um, can you tell us about researches, researching and writing those portions of the book? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's, uh, yeah, the, this village, the Haliqi village, uh, by the way, it is in the, it exists in reality in the northwest corner of Iraq, which is very close to Syria. But it's not on the map uh, at all. And uh, I myself didn't know it existed. Um, you know, you know, I was born and raised in Baghdad. And from my teenage time until I left Iraq, travel was not allowed due to those continuous wars. So that place, those villages in the, in the north, we, we used to call them the resort. I would go there for vacation or to visit, uh, you know, it's the place of my ancestors also there, the, these villages, so I would visit there. Yeah, my parents were born in one of those villages, and, but they moved to Baghdad after their marriage. So anyways, my research for the novel included that going back home and that visiting uh, particularly those places and uh, in addition to visiting the camps and the mass graves. So most of the material in this novel is not in the books, but it is, it is like oral history. I collected it from, from that visit and from my interviewing local people in the area and also from, uh, from my memory during those first, um, first um, more than half of my life in, in Iraq uh, that, that I had memories from the village and all that. So, Dunya, um, I think you are the only guest who I will have ever gotten to ask this question to. So your early work was translated by others. We've been talking about your process of researching and writing, but we haven't talked about specifically the languages in which you are writing. And you wrote this novel, as, as I understand it, first in Arabic, and then you translated it into English, translated it into English yourself. And, and your most recent volume of poems, In Her Feminine Sign, you also wrote in Arabic and English. And I wonder if you could talk to us about deciding to do that and the experience of being translated by others versus the experience of translating yourself. Yes. Uh, when I finished writing uh, the Berta to, I felt uh, nostalgic. I missed the characters, you know, you lived with them day and night and you've been, uh, they come in your dreams and all that. So. I felt, felt that I missed them, so I wrote it again this time in English. It is, of course, more convenient when you have someone else translates, you know, your work, and it's more faithful, of course, they would, you know, they'd be faithful to your work. But I found, because, you know, when I say faithful, because I would be, you know, I just allow myself to be free 
when I translate, I can make changes suddenly or, or as I see fit, um, which is may not, you know, be in the original. It's like as if you're doing a, a new draft. But I found myself in general, I found myself benefiting from translating uh, my own work in general, whether poetry or this novel. Uh, the second language, uh, in this case, English, opens my eyes to to any flaws that um, weaknesses that I may find in the original. Um, it helps me understand more that text, the original text. And um, I feel that the two languages, as if they converse together in the page, like like true love lovers. I can call them true lovers because um, I see them develop together in the page without imposing too much on each other. That's beautiful. Thank you. That's an amazingly cool answer. Um, I wish I could. I, I've never tried. I mean, I, I don't know. A la I know another language, but not well enough to do what you have done. Um, and in any language, uh, you're excellent. Uh, the, your work on this issue and in particular the bird tattoo, which we've been discussing, are just amazing and important documents. Uh, thank I want to thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time and questions. Thank you so much for being with us. And listeners, don't miss the new novel, The Bird Tattoo by Dunia McHale, out now. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!